17 verses 14 to 20 is our passage this morning. And in verse 14, it says, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king, the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, the one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests to our Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And not consider himself better than his brothers or turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. We're looking today under the heading, the law for kings. Uh, You know, back in uh, the days of Bob Hope's travelling career as an entertainer especially during the uh vietnam war he often stayed and their troop of entertainers stayed with the king and queen of thailand think of the privilege of that and uh the king was a saxophone player and he loved to play along with bob's band who used to be there and they'd put they'd have dances in the evenings and sometimes the king wanted to be up all night playing music when they just wanted to go to bed and get some rest uh, but they became really good friends. And while they were talking one on one occasion, Bob Hope learned that the king had been born in America, in Massachusetts. And he said, wow, he said, that would make you eligible to be president of the United <laughs> States. And the king of Thailand said, yes, I thought of that. But I took the job of king here because I thought that the work would be a little steadier. Well, that's uh, uh, a little white, a little story to to start us off on this theme of kings and uh, it, the the role of a king, of course, is a very very important role in scripture, and it was very important for the Jewish people in the days of Moses because at that stage they didn't have a king. The Lord, of course, is their king, uh, but the law of God was being written for the nation. And the book of Deuteronomy is where Moses lays out not only the ceremonial laws, but civil laws for the nation of Israel. And in this passage here and in the ones around it, you'll notice there are several major offices that are being outlined with instructions. We have judges in chapter 16. Uh, we have the king here and then we have the priests and the prophet in chapter 18. In fact, actually, 
prophet, priest and king, those three key roles all put there together in close proximity. And uh, it's a very, very important thing here for us to understand the law for the kings from a Bible point of view, because it'll help us to understand what was expected of the king in the Bible. And it'll help us to understand God's values for kings. But even more than that, and this is the main thing I want to draw out today, it will help us to see how the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the scripture requirements for a king. The Lord Jesus, as Dave said in his prayer earlier on, is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he is especially Israel's king. So this afternoon at chapel, God willing, we're going to be looking at uh, the crucifixion. And you remember the sign above the head of Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Well, does he match the requirements for the king? And the answer to that is an astounding yes. He very much does so. And I want you to see this today uh, because the object of our faith will determine the outcome of our eternity. We want to make sure we're putting our faith in the right place. So I want to show you today how the Lord Jesus fulfills the requirements for the king. And there's five uh, main things that are drawn out here in this passage of scripture. We read about the king's appointment, his acquisitions, his authority, his acclaim and his actions. And this is what this passage uh, will teach us step by step. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, And verse 14, you'll notice it says, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. And that's how he begins. And what he says there is that this is going to be instruction, not for now, while I'm here, because Moses wasn't setting up himself as a dynasty of kings. But he was uh, passing the laws on from God for when they came into the land and actually not even for when they first got into the land, but for when they had taken possession of it and settled in it. So this was going to be for quite a while to come. And it wasn't until 1 Samuel chapter 8, several hundred years later, that these commands, first of all, uh, were used. But it began with his appointment. In verse 15, you'll notice it says, be sure to appoint over you the king, the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among his own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. You know, lots of people would like to claim the right to be king. Uh, This man, Alan Evans, claims that he has the right to the throne of England. And uh, he's an American who in 2017 tried to uh, make that claim, but didn't get very far. Well, lots of people would like to make the claim to becoming king, but it, it wasn't open to anybody. Before there could be an anointing, there had to be an appointing. And it had to be God's choice And it had to be a brother Israelite. And you'll see these two things are brought out in verse 15. Verse 15 says, be sure to appoint over you the king, the Lord, your God chooses. It had to be God's choice. And you remember in the Old Testament how deliberate God was in choosing the first kings. 
Uh, it was Saul who Samuel was led to first of all. And you might say, yeah, but that, that wasn't the right king, was it? No, it wasn't the right king because he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And God had said already that it should be from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. And uh, from the scepter will not depart from Judah, says Genesis 49. But God chose Saul as a judgment for the nation because they wanted a king rather than the Lord. And as king and so God chose him but also God chose David and that's when the real line of kings came and in, in 1 Samuel 16 God established the household of Jesse and in particular the person of David for his choice of kings and the king has to be appointed by God I want to say this the Lord Jesus Christ is God's choice is God's choice for the king. In 1 Peter 1 verse 20, uh, we're told about the Lord Jesus that he was chosen uh, for us. Uh, he was chosen to be our saviour before the foundation of the world. And this was uh, God's choice of our king, 1 Peter 1 20. But also the king had to be a, a, a brother Israelite. They couldn't appoint somebody from among the nations. In fact, it's given both positively and negatively. Positively in verse 15, he must be from among your own brothers. And negatively, do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. So they were told both ways. Very simply, the king had to be a Jew. He had to be a Jew. And uh, that ruled out and ruled out many people in Israel's history for the wrong role of king. By the way, that ruled out King Herod in the days of Jesus' birth, because Herod, although he took the title of king of the Jews and was placed there by Rome, he was an Edomite, an Idumean, as they called them. And he had no right and the Herodians, as they were called, the people who said, oh, let's go with this. Uh, they were wrong to do so because it should be a brother Israelite, one of God's people uh, of the nation of Israel. In this respect, he had to be like the prophet who God was going to raise up in 1815, chapter 1815. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. And there's that parallel command there and this is uh, uh where we again see the fulfillment in the lord jesus christ just as god chose uh david son of jesse who was a fellow israelite a, a jewish person so the lord jesus from david's line uh was chosen to be king and he is a brother Israelite. If you're a Jewish person listening to this and you don't believe me, you find a New Testament and read the first page. Because the first page of the New Testament will show you the family line of Jesus of Nazareth from Abraham through David. And you'll find it again uh, from the other side of his family in Luke chapter 3 as well. The Lord Jesus fits the appointment for the kings. And this was the required appointment in those days. You know, it's very important that we get the right king. God told the children of Israel they were to worship in the right place and the right place and the right person were going to go together in the story of Israel. The capital God chose, which was Jerusalem, uh, already spoken. God said this earlier on in this chapter, you must worship in the place God chooses and uh, the right person 
the king who God was going to raise up was going to be there enthroned in that capital. So we can praise God today. The Lord Jesus uh, matches that requirement and trust in him for that. But then secondly, uh, we see his acquisition and uh, the acquisitions of the king are laid out in verses 16 and 18. The things that he will acquire to himself. Now, this was something that uh, Samuel, you remember, warned the people about with taking a king. And he did say, you know, he will take your sons to be in his army and he will raise taxes from you and he'll take your corn. And it's natural that a king acquires things from his people and from elsewhere. But there were rules. There were rules. And God made three very strong rules here in the matter of acquisitions. He dealt with horses. He dealt with wives and he dealt with silver and gold. And these uh, matters were very important. Let's have a look at verse 16, where we see the horses are mentioned. Verse 16, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Uh, the king was not to acquire horses in great number for himself. Uh, and the reason for that was the horse in those days, uh, the horse was actually, if I put it like this, a relatively new invention. <laughs> One of the uh, uh, interesting things is when you read about uh, Abraham going down to Egypt and Pharaoh blessing him with livestock and so on, uh, we read about the camels and all the rest of it. There were no horses mentioned. And that's because horses hadn't yet really been discovered as their potential in the early world at that stage. But by the time Moses is writing this, horses are becoming the reality uh, for warfare. And you remember Pharaoh's chariots and that that came chasing after the children of Israel, all horse drawn chariots. But when the children of Israel were going into the land, they weren't going to have a large number of horses. They hadn't bred horses in Egypt. They hadn't uh, taken horses with them. So the temptation would be say, right, we've got to have horses like the rest of the nations to have a strong army. So we're going to go to Egypt. Egypt was the great horse breeding nation at time. And I think also the Hittites, but they were going to go to Egypt to get horses for themselves. You see, what they would be in danger of doing would be putting their confidence in worldly things rather than in the Lord and say, we're safe because we got lots of horses. Well, you know, tragically, that's exactly what they did do, even though God said, don't do it. Uh, God said, don't go down there and get horses. You might be tempted to go back to Egypt where I've delivered you from. And God had said to them, you're not to go back that way again. That's not actually a direct quote of something God had said. It's an application of something God had said when God said to Moses that you won't see the uh, children of, Israel, of Egypt again after the Red Sea crossing. But uh, that was the point. And he said to them, don't go back down to get horses and put your trust in them because it'll lead you astray. But that's what they did. And you read in the book of Kings how Solomon amassed horses and gained horses from Egypt. 
And it's a fascinating thing. If you ever go to the land of Israel on a tour, uh, you'll probably hopefully get to go to a place called Megiddo, where there's the city of Megiddo overlooking the, the plain of Megiddo. And the city of Megiddo, Har Megiddo, Har is the name for a hill or city on a hill. Uh, the Armageddon is where we get the name Armageddon. Uh, it has the stables of Solomon there. And you can see the stables and some of you have seen it. Uh, and it's exactly what they were told not to do because they would breed confidence in fleshly things rather than confidence in the Lord for their security. Isn't it interesting, by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ never took horses to himself. Even when he rode into Jerusalem, what did he ride in on? On a donkey. He was so meticulous in observing this command. His confidence was in the Lord. And it even says that his trust is in the Lord uh, in Psalm 22. Also, they weren't to take wives to themselves. You'll notice in verse 17, it says he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And this is where the king had to be careful uh, with having many wives. Now, that was uh, uh, actually the normal practice for kings and monarchy. David actually took many wives, but David did it with wives among the people of Israel. Now, the reason they took many wives is that they would have many sons and therefore provide an heir. And that was uh, the way uh, that they had that sort of insurance policy. But what the Lord was especially warning against here was not only polygamy and marriage, but also making connections with other nations through marriage. And this is something, again, Solomon did. The sad thing about this point is Solomon break every one of these rules. <laughs> and uh, he married uh, ne Nehemiah 1326 is where Nehemiah warns the people. You know how Solomon married many women and they led his heart astray to go away from the Lord. Well, why had Solomon married those those women to make connections, to make treaties with other nations? Solomon wasn't a warrior like his father. He was a man of peace. He said, make love, not war. And so he, he said, let's join with other nations through marriage. And unfortunately, when he made those connections with those women, they came and they brought their idols with them. They brought their false gods with them and they led them astray. You know, that's a real warning, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's a real danger that the wrong connections can lead people astray. That's something uh, we need to be careful of in our lives as well. C.S. Lewis said this, that true friends face in the same direction. And you and I must make sure our friends and connections are people who are walking with the Lord. Amos said, can two walk together unless they're agreed? And especially even in marriage, you need to make sure you're connected with the right person. A Christian should marry a Christian. And I would even say this, a, a strong Christian should marry a strong Christian. Because otherwise, it can result in you being held back. Uh, I read a, a very touching story in the media recently about a swan on a lake in Germany that has fallen, a black swan that has fallen in love with a plastic pedal boat. And uh, this pedal boat is shaped in uh, the design of a swan. And if those my family will know because they have these down imbued. And uh, this 
swan has fallen in love with this plastic pedal boat and it swims around it making amorous noises and when all the other swans flew south this swan didn't fly away because it stayed with the plastic pedal boat (laughs) it's a sweet story really but it's a sad story because that was holding it back and you know that can happen to us spiritually if we marry the wrong person We've got to be careful of that. And so God said not to take many wives to themselves. And again, praise the Lord, how the Lord Jesus was faithful in this. Though he was surrounded by many lovely ladies, Mary and Martha and others, the Lord Jesus was faithful. And uh, he he was faithful to his role as a king and saviour. He didn't take any wives, never mind many wives. He was keeping himself for the church who was going to be his bride. And then the king wasn't to multiply to himself silver or gold either. In verse 17, you'll see in the second half, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And this had to do especially, I think, with the raising of taxes and multiplying silver and gold through taxes. David did accumulate silver and gold for the temple, but that was through conquest. Where Solomon went wrong is Solomon taxed the people heavily. And at the end of his reign, the people said, no more, we can't cope with it. But what what is the danger we're being warned about here is the danger of contentment, the contentment of the king. He must be content with the silver and gold that God has provided and look to the Lord for his blessings. And uh, this is something we can learn as well. Uh, I read somewhere that uh, Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said, how many have pulled down their souls to build up their estate. They've gone chasing after money and it's been the downfall of their spiritual life. God didn't want that to happen to the king. And so silver and gold, he said, you've got to not multiply it to yourself. Well, think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he faithful in that? He certainly was, wasn't he? And, you know, he didn't have uh, even a coin to show the people. He had to ask for a denarius when he was going to say, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He didn't have even a, a denarius to do that. Think of the humility of his birth, born in a stable. Even his burial was in a borrowed tomb. He had the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The Lord Jesus Christ fully meets the requirements of the king in terms of his acquisitions. Then thirdly, we see uh, the king's requirement in terms of his authority. And this comes out in verses 18 and 19. It says, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, and uh, it's interesting there that the mention of the throne is put in. The king is to have a throne, a a seat of authority. And in this chapter, you have all the, the hallmarks of a kingdom, a throne, a reign, all those things are mentioned. But he says, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. 
The king wasn't to rule by his own authority. The king was to rule by the authority of God. He was God's king and he was under the law as well as everybody else. And he, the law being the law of Moses, the law of God that was being given here in the book of Deuteronomy. And to emphasize that to the king, he had to make his own copy of the scriptures. Now, I want you to stop and think about this because this is a remarkable thing. This is the beginning of your having your own personal Bible. And in those days, people didn't have their own personal Bibles. Uh, there was one copy of this of this law given, and it was put in with the Levites and the priests in the tabernacle in, 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 for safekeeping. And they referred to it from there. Uh, but here the king is told to make his own copy. Now, we do know writing was well established in, already in those days in Exodus um Already Moses had been told to write in the book of the law about the uh, war against the Amalekites to continue until the end in Exodus 17. And we believe that they would have made papyrus paper uh, shown here on the screen from uh, papyrus grown in the River Nile, cut down, cut into strips and then uh, meshed together to make the first paper. If it didn't if they didn't use that, they would have used animal skins and animal skins actually have proven to be even better for writing on over time because they last longer than the papyrus. And it's an amazing thing that God commanded scripture to be copied and copied and copied so it would be preserved. And that's why we have an, a, what is called an embarrassment of riches uh, among archaeologists for the number of manuscripts we have for the scripture. People think we've only got one or two. We've got hundreds of thousands. It's absolutely staggering. More than any other book, uh, we have copies uh, of manuscripts for the Bible. But the king was to make his own copy of this for himself and he was to write it out. This this copy of the law, this law in verse 18, the, the word in the Septuagint, the Latin, sorry, the, the Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament is the word Deuteronomy. And that's where the word Deuteronomy comes from for the name of this book. And he's to make his own copy of this law uh, and it is to be with him. He's to read it all the days of his life. He's to constantly refer to it so that he may learn to revere the Lord, his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. That's why when Joash became king in the book of Kings, the young boy, uh, and they crowned him after getting rid of Athaliah, they gave him a copy of the law. First thing they did. And uh, the king was to have his own copy. And you remember God had said to Joshua, if he was to follow and keep all the words of this law and to have them on his lips, then God would make him prosperous and successful in all the ways he was to go. Well, that's what God was teaching the kings. If you follow my laws, you'll be successful and uh, they will be with you to guard you and to guide you. Well, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, what a remarkable thing that we find the Lord Jesus Christ had mastered the book of Deuteronomy by memory. You know, when we read of the temptation of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter four, Luke chapter four, we read three times over when Satan came against the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus replied with those words, it 
is written. And you know, in every case, he quoted the book of Deuteronomy. Isn't that amazing? He had memorized it. He had learned the book and stored it in his heart. It was with him always. Now, let me say this to you. I had a, a theological professor say this once. If your survival against an attack from the devil depended on you being able to quote the book of Deuteronomy, how long would you last? I can quote Deuteronomy 4 verse 4, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, but and Deuteronomy 29 verse 29, and I think that's just about it. I could probably muster the Ten Commandments. But not many of us could go through the whole book of Deuteronomy. But the Lord Jesus took the word of God into his heart. That is the true king of Israel. He really showed it. He really showed it. And all his life was dedicated to following his father's commands and doing his will. What an example for us as well, by the way. What an example. You know, if the Lord Jesus was a Bible person, how much more should we be Bible people? Uh, I've uh, been reading some of the great missionaries. Here's two great missionaries. The man uh, in the photograph is Paget Wilkes, uh, missionary to Japan uh, in the 19, early 1900s. And Paget Wilkes was a great soul winner for the Lord, but a great Bible teacher. You know, his wife said uh, about him that uh, there was all the time that I knew him. He grew all the time in grace and power. And I believe one of the secrets of his evergreen spiritual life was the way he clung to his quiet time with God each morning before breakfast. I remember uh, how many a time he knew that he really needed an extra half hour in bed in the morning, but he would forego it to have his usual time of prayer and Bible study before he started the day. What a great example that is. And that's where his spiritual power came from. The other man in the picture there is William Carey, the famous missionary uh, to India. And at Surampore, where he started his work and translated the Bible, he was in the thick of it and leading uh, the mighty, mighty work that started the missionary movement uh, to, that we know of today. But you know what? Despite the busyness of his day, he had a private time with the Lord and he built himself a little arbor uh, where he could go and meet with the Lord away from his office, away from all the responsibilities, away from the churches where he was preaching. And he would meet with the Lord at sunrise just before tea. And when it was a full moon, because then there would be less chance of danger from snakes, which is something you think about in India, uh, he would go and meet with the Lord and read the Bible and pray. That was the secret, their spiritual power. They were following the Lord Jesus example there. And so should you and I. Someone has said backsliding is often caused by slack abiding. So let's make sure that's not true of us by God's grace. And then third, fourthly, we see in this passage his acclaim. If you come to verse 20, the king's acclaim is talked about and it says, and not consider himself better than his brothers. Bishop J.C. Ryle once said this, no sin is so deeply rooted in our nature as pride. It cleaves to us like our skin. 
<laughs> and it's true. We do have a, a, a an attitude of pride uh, uh, by nature. Uh, even as children, we see it uh, in the clubs with the children. They want to be the best. They want to be thought of as the best and, and to be thought of top place, having the best seat and so on. Well, the the king was not to consider himself better than his brothers. Now, you'll notice three times in this passage already, it has been stated that the king is over us or over you in verse 14 and 15 twice. But although he is over them in terms of authority, he wasn't over them in terms of deity. And he wasn't to set himself up as greater than a human being, as being divine for worship. And this is where uh, the the danger we're warned of, 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 of man worship comes in. He had to be humble and not set himself up as a god. Now, I don't know of any Old Testament king who did that, uh, but it is going to happen in the future. We're told about the Antichrist. And actually, I went through this chapter and the Antichrist breaks nearly every one but one of these rules as we're revealed in Scripture. He goes down to Egypt and gathers silver and gold. You see that in Deuteronomy 11. Uh, he is certainly not God's appointment. He may not even be a true Jew, although he has some connection with Dan. Um, but his acclaim is that he is God. In 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, we're told that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What a warning that will be to Israel when that happens, that he's not their Messiah, he's not their king. But their true king, even though he is God, he did not, uh, he, he, he laid aside his claims as God. You remember that beautiful passage in Philippians chapter two, where he did not count it uh, robbery to be equal with God, but he became humble like a servant. Mark ten forty five tells us that he said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And he even stooped before going to the cross to the work of a servant in washing his disciples feet. What humility from one who desired, who had the right to claim himself to be better than his brother. Surely the Lord Jesus Christ mm -hmm. fulfills this claim. And uh, we should follow his example for humility. He who sings his own praise is usually off key, said one person. Finally, we see in his actions in verse 20 in the last part, it says, then he and his descendants will, sorry, and Verse 20, and turn, so verse 20 as a whole, and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. <clears throat> now, what this is talking about is, of course, his actions. And although he may not acquire lots of things, he, although he may not acclaim himself to be God, he may still live wrongly by the word of God, but he's not to. He's not to turn to, from the law to the right hand or to the left. He's to walk the straight and narrow path uh, using scripture terms. And then God said they would be blessed. By the way, you'll notice this is the parallel with the command given to children, to honor your mother and father, that you may live long in the land. This is the same type of injunction given on this verse here in verse 20. 
God saying, obey me. He said in Isaiah chapter one, verse 19, obey. If you will obey, you will eat the good of the land. And that was God's way. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ kept perfectly the law of God without turning from it to the right hand or the left. And because of that, he can be our saviour. The great preacher Robert Murray Machane uh, said this in one of his sermons. He said, Christ didn't just come to be a dying saviour. He came to be a doing saviour. And I really like that. He came to be a doing saviour. He said in, in Psalm 40, which is quoted in Hebrews 10, behold, I have come to do all your will in the law. <laughs> he can, I've come to do your will, O God. And he did. And by his perfect righteousness, living out the law, he wove a garment of perfect righteousness for you and me, that he may be our saviour. How thankful I am that he lived a perfect life and no one could convict him. Even when he went to the cross, they had to say, you know, that they couldn't find any fault. They had to bring forth liars into the court uh, to, to get a false claim of blasphemy made against him. So does the Lord Jesus Christ fulfill these requirements? Yes, he absolutely does. In every single place, he is the one who fulfills the law for kings. And what a blessing that is for us to know. You know, back in the early days of cinema, this place, Brawman's Theatre in Hollywood, I believe it is, was the place where careers were made or broken. It was really the first major movie theatre. And it's when all the great big blockbusters of early cinema were shown here. And in the early days, they showed this film here, The King of Kings. I wonder if some of you remember seeing that. It was one of those early uh, films about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the cinema advertised it with these words. They said, the world has always been looking for a king, but never more than today. And I want to say that's true. That's true. Even to this day, the world is looking for a king. Sadly, uh, we're like the, the book of Judges. There is no king and everyone does what's right in his own eyes. That's what we're like. And sadly, the wrong king, like Saul, is going to come, the Antichrist. But praise God, the true king like David is going to follow him, the king of kings and lord of lords. He has already come. And I would urge you, if you've not yet put your trust in him, to look to him to be your saviour and lord. He is our prophet, priest and king and the one who we trust in.